enough. It uh, it's brilliant just to see people serving. Thank you so much for everybody being um, just getting stuck in already. Um, for uh, Keith and Sharon and the team who look after all the hospitality for Johnny doing such an incredible job every week getting us set up for. AV and sound, Aussie leading worship, all the kids, volunteers, and many, many others. You should never start a list, you shouldn't. <laughs> come on, come on, come to me. Uh, but everybody's serving in loads of different ways. I just really, really appreciate the guys lifting the offerings, putting the chairs out. We just, uh, when we have so many people, which is a great problem to have, you know, we, we just, uh, we, we want to all get stuck in together. So thank you, and uh, we appreciate it. And uh, hopefully as more and more people get uh, get stuck in and find home here and serve, um, everyone can get to enjoy uh, Sundays together as well. Uh, I'm going to start off this morning by... Um, uh, probably not reading a passage. I'm going to refer to different passages as I read, if that's okay. What we're going to do this morning is we're going <clears> to <throat> push on um, a little bit. The last few weeks, we had Roger here last week. The two weeks before that, we shared a little bit around our vision and, our, and, and some of the values and key practices that we felt the Lord had laid on our heart. And this morning, we want to push into teaching on those practices. Just a quick reminder that we feel like part of our story here is to help, or part of our vision here is to help rewrite the story of Kurgavan, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the kingdom of God. And very simply, our three core values are loving God, loving people and loving the world. And then a couple of weeks ago, Chris and I talked a lot about what our six key practices are. And we we feel that these are the practices that um, are fueled by our core values, to love God, love the... um, love people and love the world, that these six practices would kind of shape who we are. And so our, our, our thought is that over the next six months, we would teach on these practices, uh, what they mean for us from Scripture, how we feel inspired by them, and uh, and to do that in such a way that also gets pretty practical of what they could mean for us. How, how are we as a community in this first season of our journey together? How are we going to practice them together? I heard a great analogy recently about how far Following Jesus is both straight lines and circles. It's both straight lines, <clears throat> excuse me, and circles. And um, I thought this was really good, and I've been thinking about it quite a bit uh, since I uh, I heard it. Because throughout the Bible, you could say there's both straight lines and there's circles. There's a straight line in the sense that we are heading from the Garden of Eden to the city of Jerusalem. The story has got a trajectory. It's going in a particular direction. We know how this thing's going to end. We've seen the end of the movie, if you like. Okay? We know how it's going to end. Sort of. Right? <laughs> Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Okay? We're not exactly sure when he's coming back. Exactly. We could, you know... People have debated for years exactly how he's coming back, all that kind of thing. But we're moving in a straight line. Um, But as well as that, there's various circles, various themes throughout the Bible that you continue to circle around. So, for example, you have the theme of Exodus at the very start of Scripture, where the slaves are delivered from Israel. But this theme of Exodus goes on and on through the Old Testament into actually the New Testament. Matthew, in particular, in the Gospel writer, he, he, uh, in the early part of Jesus' life, he themes the whole thing around a new Exodus. 
because Jesus has came. You could say the same about the idea of the temple, which we'll refer to today, that the Garden of Eden was almost seen as a, a temple where God's presence would reside. And then you go on in the Old Testament, you have the moving tabernacle, and then you have the temple of David, and then you have Jesus coming as the temple, and then you have us as the temple. We just sung it this morning, let us praise as fill this temple. That's not the temple in the Old Testament. That's these temples of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is going to come back and establish a new heaven and a new earth. And that temple is going to happen where the whole earth is going to be filled with the glory of God. And so we've, in a sense, we've got a biblical examples of how following Jesus is both a straight line and a circle. I don't know about you and your own personal life. If you personalize that, your your life is on a trajectory somewhere. You've probably got a dream. Hopefully you have maybe a dream or a goal of what you're going towards, what you're moving towards. But you've also got certain things that just keep coming back to. Part of your family DNA, part of who you've been created to be, the things that are core values for you as a person, you probably keep coming back to them. And I suppose it's a good analogy to think about how we feel that the straight line that the Lord has called us to is to help rewrite the story of the city. We're moving towards something. We're not exactly sure how that's going to come to be, but we're moving in that direction. We're not just here, just in our own little huddle for a while. We're, we've, got a, we've got a goal. We've got a vision. Without a vision, people perish. And so we're moving towards something. But there's certain themes that we think that will continue to orbit around that will help us become the kind of people that God wants us to be in order to fulfill that vision. And so if you like, those six practices are like the circles. We'll always talk about prioritizing presence. We'll always talk about being a family. We'll just keep coming back to that. And it'll change in different seasons, maybe how we outwork that. But we'll always talk about investing in youth. We'll always talk about striving for kingdom unity because that's the kind of people that God has called us to be, we feel. And so over the next six uh, months or so, as we head towards the summertime, we we really want to teach in these values and just help embed them in our hearts and in our minds as a culture so that we can be a family that represents those particular practices. hope that makes sense. And so when we feel inspired by the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah had a straight line, hadn't he? He was going to build those walls, right? Nothing was going to stop him. His straight line is those walls are coming up, right? But he had certain practices that enabled him to do that. He had certain circles or certain themes in his life, certain themes in his leadership style that allowed that um, goal to be completed, And so this morning I want to take some time to speak about the first of these practices, and we're going to do that. Debbie's going to speak next week. We're going to take a little bit of time next three or four weeks to talk about prioritizing the presence of God and why that's um, a number one practice for us. Because that's what we want to be. We want to be a people highly devoted to Jesus. When you look at the early church, they were just ordinary people like you and me, but they were burning, burning inside with a love for Jesus. And they prioritized his presence. Their straight line was, go into all the world, preach the gospel. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But one of their key circles was, we're going to just meet in rooms and prioritize his presence. And then we're going to carry that out. And we're not going to carry our own good ideas out. We're going to carry his presence out. And uh, <clears throat> and we, we want to be that. That's the kind of people that we want to be. And so before I get, I'm going to go to Nehemiah at the very end, just hopefully if I get there this morning. I want to just do a big picture scope 
of why it's important to prioritize the presence of God. Is that, is that okay? You with me? Um, I'm going to try and race through a bit of the biblical story here. hope that's all right. I tend to do this every now and again because I love the whole story of God. Um, um, so hopefully I'll probably miss bits out. But I want to just land in a few places that really emphasize the importance of the presence of God. Because this is the core theme and the heart of the God story. God has always wanted a presence, people. The presence of God is the point of the story. It is the point. It's not a byproduct. It's the point. It's what God wants us to enjoy. And because the presence is the point, it's also the promise. And because it's the promise, it's also actually the whole paradigm of the story itself. We could frame the whole story of God from Genesis to Revelation in and around an understanding of the presence of God because it's what God has always wanted. From the garden to the city, God simply wants intimacy and desires to be with his people. He delights when he's with them. There's an intimacy that God desires with us that is so deep and so beautiful that would arrest our souls. It'll feel like when we come to know it, it was why we were born to live. Uh, St. Augustine got it right, I think, when he said this famous little quote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. I heard that quote as a young boy, well, as a young sort of teenager, and I've never forgotten it. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. God in himself, right from the start, is love. He in himself is the essence of presence. Roger touched on it last week that God in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct personalities that are so closely connected, so closely in love, if you like, with one another, that they are one. They're honoring one another. They're self-giving to one another. They're um, laying themselves down, if you like, for one another. It's the purest, holiest, selfless love that you could ever imagine. And because it's holy, pure, Love, not like possessive, worldly kind of love, but pure, self-giving love, it overflows, it spills over. And so God is a community in himself, God is love in himself, because he is three distinct personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so in love with one another that that love cannot keep itself for itself. It overflows. And it's against that backdrop that creation comes into play. Because God is also creator, and he creates human beings in his own image. So they cannot find rest anywhere else. If you're here today, and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, there's a void inside. There's a, there's a you know, I suppose that little God-shaped hole because he made us for himself. We can't find, he didn't make us to find deep depth of happiness and joy and purpose in life without him. And so God creates human beings in his image. And in the Garden of Eden, we see God enjoying this level of presence, this level of intimacy with his people. It says that he actually walked with Adam in the cool of the day. There's a particular scripture in the first couple of chapters that says that Adam heard the footsteps of God. When I heard you walking in the garden, isn't that, imagine hearing God's footsteps, the whispers of who God is. And Adam got to enjoy this and Eve as well with God. And they not only got to enjoy the presence of God, they were also given a vocation. And I think this is key and I don't think we're often taught this. I think part of their vocation was to extend the borders of Eden throughout the whole earth to steward the presence of God throughout the whole earth. Because when you read it in Genesis 1 and 2, Eden had borders. 
actual, it seems to have actual physical borders. And so it seems to be that mankind's vocation was to help steward the presence of God into the whole earth. Adam was God's kind of vice regent, if you like, his priest king that would steward the presence of God. But man sinned. And this beautiful intimacy got disrupted. It actually told us, sometimes we miss this too, that if they had ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. It's a blessing in itself. It's grace in itself that they didn't die. God kept them alive. (laughs) Yeah, even though their story could have been wiped out, but God in his grace keeps them alive. And not only does he keep them alive, he actually continues to try and communicate with them and pursue them, even though their sin has fractured his relationship with them. And so God starts to miss what he had with the ones he made in his image. And so in the Garden of Eden, after man's sin, God comes walking one day again to find Adam and Eve to say, let's do what we do every day. Let's go for that walk. Let's enjoy one another. Let's delight in one another. And, and Adam and Eve have sinned, and so they're hiding, and they've covered themselves up. And we hear this, this question, this question, key, key question from God. And it's this, were are you? Where are you? I miss you. I miss what we had. Where are you? We can't walk today the way that we walked yesterday. Where are you? I'm looking for you. And that cry echoes right down through the God story. That's what God's saying to humanity. And that's what God's saying to some of you and me this morning. Where are you? It's been a while since we got to walk together. It's been a while since you came came aside. It's been a while just before we got to hang out. And that, where where are you? And, and maybe for some of you who have never put your trust in Jesus today, that's his question. Where are you? Where are you? I'm longing for you. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for this moment. And so God continues to ask this question of humanity. And one of the first ones he asks is a man called Abraham. You see these incredibly intimate moments with Abraham. God um, gives Abraham a promise, doesn't he, that he's going to be a a father. But it's 25 years, 26 maybe, before that promise comes to pass. Before God gives him Isaac. Why is that? Because in these moments we see these dramatic, intense, intimate moments where God is trying to say to Abraham, Abraham, I have a promise for you, but first and foremost it's about the presence. It's about the blesser before it's about the blessing. It's about the giver before it's about the gift. Because God has these moments with Abram where he comes down, passes through torches, and it's like God and Abram kind of getting engaged, getting married. Something deep is happening. Because God wants his people to know how much he wants to be with them. And then we see it in Jacob. We see it, in that. We see it right through, but I'm just picking a few. We see it in Jacob. He lies down for a snooze one night when he's on the run, puts his head in the rock, and what happens? He sees a vision, a ladder, heaven and earth. Heaven and earth connecting, angels going down. This is the God who wants and has always longed for where he lives to be where we live. And so this ladder becomes significant throughout the whole story because it reminds us that God is looking to connect. God's wanting his presence to be on the earth. And then we see it with the children of Israel, don't we? These moments where God comes down on a mountain and wants to presence himself with his people. And he says to Moses one day, um, I want to come down and I want to, ma- I want to make a sanctuary. I want you to make a, build a big tent, big tabernacle, because I want to dwell among them. I, 
are you, are you getting this this morning? I want to dwell among them. I, I don't want to stay up here and just shout down from heaven and go, how you doing? Hope you're getting on all right. Let me know if you need me. I want to actually come down. I want to live amongst you. I want to be, I want to be in your midst. And then around this part of the story, we have this intense, intense moment in Scripture. It's one of the most powerful, I think potentially my favorite part of the Scripture, Exodus 33. Because even though God does come down and dwell amongst them, these Israelites are stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they're a bit like us. <laughs> yeah, And they, they, want to, they want to do their own thing. And, and God is meeting with Abraham and he comes to, or, sorry, God is meeting with Moses up the mountain. He comes down after 40 days and they're worshiping a golden calf. And God says, Moses, I can't do it anymore. I keep telling these people how much I love them. I've delivered them from Egypt and I, I can't do it anymore. So listen, I'm not going with you. And Moses says, God, anyone watch Dealer No Deal? Yeah. Moses is like, God, no deal. Imagine the boldness of that. Speaking to the God Almighty, no deal. And God says, well, okay, I'll go with you. No, God says, you can go into the promised land, but I'm, I'm not going. And Moses says, definitely no deal. Because unless your presence, your presence, your presence, the Hebrew word for presence is the word face. It's not some theory that God might be with you. It's the very face of God himself. Unless your face goes before us, unless your presence goes with us, we are not moving from this spot, God. And in these moments, this is what I think what happens. It's like heaven's ripped open. And actually, even maybe more than that, God's heart is ripped open. And you see right up into the heart of God. Because in that moment, God, I think, is undone. Because he's... He's watched one of his sons get it. He's got it. This is, this is all I've ever wanted. This is, he's got it. You know, sometimes we talk about in worship being undone, and that's a beautiful place to get to. I think in these moments, God's heart is just completely arrested. One of his sons has just completely undid his heart. Because he's got the very essence of what the story is about. The intimacy that God desires with his people. His presence. I'll, I'll not take time to read it, but I had it up there. And God says, okay, Moses, I will go with you and I will give you rest. Because Moses says, God, even if we go, the thing that actually makes us distinct from all the other people is your presence. It's not our own gifts. It's not our own, it's not our own intellect. It's, it's your presence. And God says, okay, Moses, I'll, I'll go with you. It's a great bit of the story then, because then Moses sort of chances his arm a wee bit, and he goes, all right then, Lord, will you show me your glory too? And, uh, and God does, well, kind of shows him, his passes by him. and Moses sees the back of God, and God reveals who he really is. But God was always showing his people, and part of the sanctuary that was built for him had a, had a place called the Holy of Holies where God's manifest presence would come down. It was talked about the footstool of God. The prophets would speak about heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Can you imagine? It's almost like God sitting on his throne and the Ark of the Covenant being the footstool for God. Somehow again, heaven and earth would be linked, would be connected. It's a bit like the ladder, isn't it? It's what God has always wanted. 
And God would come down and meet with his people and the high priest would go in and encounter God and the people would know that God is with them and God is for them and his presence wants to dwell among them. And then we see it on through the story. We see it in King David. We see it in him and not many other of the kings, unfortunately, through the kingdom of Israel. But we see in, in David this heart, that a man after God's own heart because he loved his presence. David, David could say something like this when he wrote the Psalms, my heart when I heard you say, seek my face, when I heard you say, when he heard, there's the face again, when I heard you say, seek my face, my heart said, your, your face, Lord, I will seek. We see it in the prophets. You know, it's, it's, it's intense stuff. If you read the prophets, Hosea, talking about God being a lover who loves his bride, even when she prostitutes herself all over the place, take her back and love her. We see about God being in Isaiah, a mother. How can I give you up? And Hosea as well. How can I give you up away from? You were the one that nursed on my breast. How can I give you up? We hear it in Jeremiah when he says, All I desired was that you would call me father. All I was longing for, God said, is that you would just call me your father. But you didn't. See the brokenness of God's heart coming through because what he longs for isn't coming. And then, of course, we get to the New Testament and we see it in Jesus because he fully reveals who the Father is to us. And we see that God's desire is to be close to us. Even the fact that he came shows us how much God wants us to be in his presence. And John chooses his words carefully when he writes his gospel because he says, the word became flesh in dwelt amongst us. And that word dwelt in the Greek actually means tabernacled, right? So in the same way that the tabernacle was the place where God's manifest presence came, Jesus in a person became the locus, the center of the presence of God on the earth in a person. God fully embodied in the person of his son to show us how much he wanted a relationship with us. This is how close he wanted it. Like a vine, Jesus would say. Like a vine and a branch. Like, where does a vine start and a branch end? Or the other way around? They're so entwined into one another. They're, they're one. And Jesus would then go on and say, Repent for what? The, the kingdom of God is at hand amongst you. <laughs> this world that I've always wanted to break into your world, it's here now. You can reach out and grab it. You can touch it. It's at hand. Something new is happening. This is, this is the good news. And then, maybe to emphasize it even further, Jesus, before he's crucified, he'd walk into the temple one day, and he'd get really righteously angry, and he'll say, my house shall be called a house of prayer, a place where heaven and earth meet. But you've made it a den of robbers. The place of God's house is not a place of just Christian activity or of Christian busyness, or of meetings. (laughs) It's a place of presence. It's a place where I meet the living God with my people. And then in the climax of Jesus' death, and his resurrection, the veil is ripped in two. And what happens as the veil is ripped in two, this place where only one person could go, once a year now has access to everybody. And we can all go boldly into the very throne. And before the very throne of God, we have access to his presence, access to his face. And the Holy of Holies isn't a place in a tabernacle anymore. It's these 
sees human bodies, this flesh and blood becomes the tabernacle, the hosting place for the presence of God on earth today. And this is what Pentecost is all about, so that the Spirit would be poured out where on all flesh. It doesn't say the Spirit was poured out into the Holy of Holies. As in the place in the tabernacle, that the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, so that we could all, all know what God has always wanted us to know. The presence of the Lord living in our hearts. A friendship with Jesus. A deep intimacy with God. So that every morning, whenever we wake up and throughout our days, that we would become aware, like Adam did way back in the garden, of the footsteps. The footsteps of the Lord. Walking in intimacy with Him. It's what He's always wanted. And so when it comes to when it comes to the presence of God, this is what he's long for. Just God is always long for an, for an intimate people, and, and that's how it's going to end. It's all going to end with, with this. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look at this, look, God's dwelling place is now among, <laughs> now among the people. <laughs> God is going to have what God has always longed for, which is to dwell right amongst us in our midst. This is how our story ends, folks. This is what we're moving towards. But there's a degree to which the future is rushing into the present. It's a wonderful thing. St. Augustine was right, wasn't he? Our hearts were made for him, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. All right? You with me? Ten, ten, ten or fifteen minutes to finish. Could you get me a drink of water? Thank you. So that's kind of the whole Bible in a bit of a sweep, right? The, the presence paradigm. From the garden to the city, God is wanting to be with his people. God is wanting where he lives, to be where we live. And in Jesus, he's provided the most stunning way for us to know that. The thing about the presence paradigm, or the thing about the presence of God, is it's not just about intimacy with him. It is that first and foremost. But it's also about this. It's also about involvement with the world. Thank you, Debbie. It's also about, you might have picked this up already, <clears throat> but the presence of God right throughout the story that I've described, it was never a private thing, right? It was a personal thing in many ways. I've described some of the deeply personal moments that Abraham and Moses had with God, and you will know that, hopefully in your own life, some of the deep personal moments that you've had with the presence of God, but it was never private. It was never supposed to be kept in one place for one person. It was about kings and queens and widows and orphans and other nations. It was, it was for everyone. The presence was meant to always overflow. So the heart of God, as I described at the very beginning, where this all starts in the very heart of the Trinity, it was overflowing love. Eden, as I described, was supposed to extend. It was supposed to multiply. And so when God spoke to the children of Israel, or sorry, when God spoke to Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and 
and multiply. There was a sense in which the blessing of God was supposed to multiply throughout the whole earth. It was, it was to go beyond where it had already been experienced. It was supposed to get wider. It was supposed to get more expansive. It was supposed to bless the world. Yeah, because that's what the presence of God is and does. You can't contain it. But because of sin and because of selfishness, the opposite happened. And the presence of God that was supposed to be stewarded well and multiply, the opposite happened. It started to get restricted and exclusive and for an elite kind of people. And it got abused. And so people started to use the presence of God to justify their own means, to prop up their own agendas, to serve their own idols, rather than multiply. It's funny how things haven't changed, isn't it? The way we use God and his presence to prop up our own ideologies, our own politics at times. Yeah, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. There's no other way to say it. It's it's not the heart of God, that God is for a certain people and not for another set of people. It's just fundamentally flawed. It's just completely opposite to what the God story is all about. Because what had happened, you see, God was trying to show a nation, Israel, he was trying to show them how to approach the presence of God. And so when he built, and he asked them to build the tabernacle, he was trying to show them that when Jesus had came to earth, he wanted to, sorry, that when he built the tabernacle, that his heart had always been to be with his people, and there was a certain way to approach him. But when Jesus, you see, came to the earth, and he saw what was happening in the tabernacle, he got righteously really, really angry. And it wasn't because there was no prayer going on. There was actually quite a bit of prayer going on. It was the type of prayer that was happening that got Jesus really, really upset. Because the temple had become a place where it was nearly impossible for people to access the presence of God. And Jesus wanted to do something about that. It's important to know just a little bit of the history. Herod, at the time, had built, had rebuilt the temple for the Jews just before Jesus' birth. And he'd enlarged it. And he'd built a big outer court that created like a big, vast plaza, paved it with marble and surrounded it by pillars. And anyone was able to enter that particular part. But it was known as the Court of the Gentiles. And that's where Jesus actually overthrew the tables. Why did he do that? First of all, there was exploitation going on. You might already know that. They reckon there was about 226,000 animals that were slaughtered during that time in that area for pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, right? So it was pretty gory. The problem was the people in the temple were charging rates that the pilgrims who had just made their whole way to Jerusalem couldn't afford, so they're ripping them off. Jesus didn't like that. There was injustice with that. But more so for our story today, there was exclusion going on. The temple was a bit like, the structure of the temple was a bit like a Russian doll. And I want you to try and imagine this for a moment. So there was an area that was called the Court of the Gentiles. Within that area, there was a court that the women had to stay in. They weren't allowed beyond that bit. And then there was a court for the Israelites. And the Israelites were only allowed into a certain section. And then there was a court within the Israelites where only the Jewish men were allowed. And then there was a court within that that only the priests were allowed. And then there was a court within that where only the high priest was allowed. Okay? And so while there was an element of God's design to that originally, it was never so that they could um, monopolize the presence of God for themselves. It was always that they could show the world 
what the presence of God was like because that scripture actually says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For the Israelites? No. It says for all nations, for all peoples. And that's why Jesus gets so angry because they had made it a place that only certain people could get into. And there was restrictions. Women, Gentiles, People that were unclean. Nobody could get near the presence of God. And Jesus got angry about that sort of thing. Got really, really angry. And he started to turn over the tables. And he said, you have made this a den of robbers. Because this was about my presence, which is for all people. And you have made it a place of exclusiveness. You have made a religious apartheid out of my temple. Which is supposed to be to show my heart for all nations. And so in summary, if you can imagine all that I've told you. The presence of God in the Garden of Eden is this wide, expansive thing that God wants to fill the earth. Sin comes into play and man's selfishness starts to dictate how the presence of God is stewarded. It gets narrowed. Rather than multiplying, it gets narrowed. It gets narrowed into a nation, which gets narrowed into certain men within that nation, which gets narrowed into a priesthood, which gets narrowed into one person, which means by the time Jesus comes, the only person that can get to the presence of God is one man in a temple structure. And so when Jesus sees what's happening, he goes, I'm coming to liberate humanity from that so everybody can know what my original dream was. And so when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and the temple was veil was ripped in two, it was like everybody's welcome. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every man, every woman is going to be able to access the presence of God because that's what I've always wanted. And so when Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit falls, it tells us that it fell on all flesh, even your servants, even the female servants. Imagine that, a female servant, right at the very lowest rung of society, right at the very bottom of the social ladder. The Spirit of God's going to fall on her and she's going to prophesy. And she's going to dream the dreams of God. And she's going to have visions. Because my heart has always been that the presence of God would be for all people, Jesus says. And so it's not just about our intimacy with God. It is that first and foremost. But if we steward it well, we will not leave it in this room, folks. We will not leave it in our studies and in our nice cozy sofas with our cup of coffees and Bibles as amazing as that is, and as much as you need that. But you will find a way, if it truly is the presence of God, to carry it into wherever you live every day. Because God wants people to be so close to him that he can touch them and that he can shower his love upon them. And so we want to be people of the presence of God. We want to be people that prioritize his presence because God loves it when we do. And it's the point of the story. Moses shows us this. God, if it's not your face, we are not moving. And we know that a bit from our journey to get here, haven't we? So much of it didn't make sense. Sure it didn't. But God, if this is not your presence, if this is not your presence, we're not moving from here. Well, we've just got a sense that you're, you're leading us beyond our comfort zones. You're leading us beyond the walls. You're pushing us beyond the places that we've been comfortable maybe for a while and well, that would just be God when you know the story, isn't it? Because the presence of God isn't just about intimacy with him. It's about involvement with the world. And Jesus showed us that. You see, presence that doesn't lead to mission can become self-indulgent. 
I love to worship God. I can do a good half night of worship, no problem. But if it's if it's all oriented about me and me and me, and so many of the songs today which are amazing, but they're still me oriented, what God's doing to me and how God's healing me, and that's all really, really important. But somewhere along the line, God wants to speak to us. God wants us to intercede. God wants us to get a burden for the world that he loves. And so sometimes presence without mission becomes self-indulgent. The opposite is that sometimes mission, mission without the presence is just marketing. It's just a brand for another Christian thing. Yeah? And some of us really get the intimacy thing. Like, we love that. We could be like, you know, with our Bethel CD on, you know, we're just lost and, you know, we're all into that. And that's amazing. But, you know, we're not really that sure about how we relate to the world. And then some of us are, are, are really into changing the world. But, you know, when it comes to worship, we're sort of hands in the pockets, is boring me, all of that kind of thing. Right? And, and, and somewhere in the middle, Jesus modeled both. And here's what I think happens. Here's, if, you, if you want to kind of get the balance, you, you pray a very simple prayer, something, something like this. I think it's on the next slide. There you go. Jesus, break my heart for what breaks yours. Because you, you can't know Jesus and what he cares about unless you know him, like unless you deeply know him. Unless you, you know somebody really well, you can't really know them. You can't really know their hearts. But when you, when you, when you know them, you start to know what's in their heart. So you, you can't know the things that Jesus is deeply passionate about, really, without knowing him, without knowing him intimately. And you can't really know him intimately without doing something about it, without being moved in the way that he is moved for the world in which he lives. And so this is, this is a very special prayer, but it's a really dangerous prayer. Don't pray it unless you're really prepared to allow God to do whatever he wants with your heart because it'll wreck your life in all the right ways and take you into the places where Jesus is and allow your heart to become his. And throughout, as I finish, throughout the book of Nehemiah, I'm just going to reference this today and we'll pick it up in the weeks ahead. In the book of Nehemiah, to finish, that's where the whole rebuilding of the walls came from. Because Nehemiah prayed a prayer which had that as its essence. Because in the very first chapter of Nehemiah, it tells us this. Let me read it. In the month of Kislev, it's like February or something. <laughs> that's that's guess. In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some men. And I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you see? Intimacy with God. Do you, do you see this, this guy that was obviously used to being before the Lord, the God of heaven, the awesome God, the one who keeps his covenant of love with those who keep his commandments. Nehemiah must have been used to knowing the love of God, just resting in his love. But that love fueled and broke something inside him when he heard about a city whose walls were broken down. It goes on to say this, let your ear be attentive 
and your eyes be open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands and the decrees and the laws that you give your servant Moses. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And Nehemiah gets permission from the king to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, all because he allowed the Lord to do this. He realized that prayer and the presence of God meant both an intimacy with the Father that you cannot find and you were not born to know in any other But that intimacy will lead you to an involvement with the world, to the broken and the poor and the lost. Because God wants his house to be a house of prayer. For the church? No. For Christian activity? No. God wants his house of prayer to be a place for all people, for broken humanity. And if we prioritize his presence and steward it well, you know what? We're going to know some of the richest times together before King Jesus, bowing at his feet, kneeling before him, experiencing his presence, untangle all the knots, heal all the brokenness, bind up all our wounds, heal our marriages, soothe our friendships, bring a love for one another. You know, it's going to, it's going to be beautiful. But you know, if, if we continue to do that, if we continue to prioritize his presence, we'll not just know that, but, but our hearts will start to break. We'll start to weep some tears for some people groups, for some neighbors, for some colleagues. We'll start to feel the burden of Jesus that he feels for this world. We'll start to think new ways of how we could reach the people in this town that nobody else wants to reach. We'll start to hopefully get a fresh burden for reconciliation. We'll start to walk up streets where everything else is hopeless and start to think hope. We'll start to look at places that feel damaged and think God, you, and maybe only you can fix us. That's the kind of people we will become if we prioritize presence. We're not talking about just a really good set of worship where we all feel great and get a few goosebumps and a cup of coffee and go. We're not talking about that when we talk about prioritizing presence. We're talking about enjoying the presence of God. Yes, of course, there's no other place we'd rather be. We're talking about getting transformed to change the world. And this is where Nehemiah's passion and inspiration and story all started from a prayer that he prayed. Lord, you are the God of love who keeps his commandments. And in that moment, he started to feel the burden of God thrust upon his soul. He just had to do something about it. He couldn't stay in the same place. And I feel like that's what God's calling us to do, has been calling us to do. But when we talk about prioritizing presence, That's what we mean, very simply. Intimacy with God, involvement with the world. Jesus died so that that veil would be ripped in two and there would be access all areas. That the presence of God would get to people in every tribe, in every tongue, in every nation. So I'd love to pray for you this morning and pray for us. Is that okay as we finish? Um, Dossie, would you come and let's just stand together, could we? And just... um, Allow just the presence of God just to come upon us just as we get ready to close today. Just where you are, maybe you want to just, just for a moment, 
why don't you just I just thank the Lord for his presence and thank Jesus for what he has done so that this morning you can come boldly before his throne. Why don't, why don't you just do that for a moment? Just wherever you are, just thank the Lord. Just, just tell him how grateful we are for what he's done for us. And if you need a touch of his presence tonight, or this morning, sorry, if you need a touch of his presence, just, just receive it. Just receive it right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Just would you increase your presence right now, Lord. Increase the sense of your presence, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I have a, I have a hunch this morning that some people, you know, there's a few relational difficulties that are just going on in life. And I just want to encourage you. I feel the Lord wants to encourage you this morning that his, his presence is, is enough. It might not give you all the kind of rational solutions that you're looking, but I think he's just calling you to trust in his presence. Just receive his presence. Receive his presence fresh. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you here, Lord. We're grateful for what you've done for us, Jesus. We thank you for your sacrifice, God. We thank you that the veil is ripped in two. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So, Lord, I asked this morning that we would be a, a presence people. Or before we're anything else. Before we get known for anything else, God. God, we just want to be known as your people. Lord, we just want to echo that words that Moses showed us all those years ago, God. If it's not your presence, we don't want to leave here. We don't really want to do this, even God. We, we want to be as bold as Moses was, and we want to say, God, we, we don't want to leave, God. We don't, we don't want to go further on this journey unless it's your presence. So would you keep our hearts soft, God? I ask you to keep my heart soft. And Lord, as a people, would you keep our hearts soft to your presence, God? And Lord, because it's your presence that makes us distinct, God, we're, we're not smart enough, rich enough, popular enough to, to do. We just don't even want to go there, God. It's only your presence that makes us distinct, God. It's only what you've done in our lives and, and how that overflows, God. Where would, we, where would we be, Lord, without your presence, God? Where would we... Where would we be today, God? We dread to think, God, where we'd be, where we could have ended up, Lord, what what place we could have been in if it hadn't have been for your presence. Relentlessly, God, pursuing us, your goodness and mercy, tracking us down the back streets of our lives, God. We don't know where we would have been, God, and we dread to think, but we're grateful this morning, God, as a people. We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful that you, you crashed into our hearts, God, and you captivated our hearts with a love that no other person can give us. Lord, with a way that our souls can feel healed and fulfilled and satisfied in a way that no other thing can give us because we weren't born to know it apart from that. And so, God, we just thank you. We're grateful, God. And would you help us, God, even now to be filled afresh with your presence and your spirit. That, Lord, that we would feel what you feel, God but we would carry what you carry for the world that you love. God, make us a presence people, we pray. Make us a presence people in Jesus' name.
Thank you, Lord. I'm just going to sing a chorus just quickly, and then Chris will pray to finish this this morning before we go and get our kids. But let's just uh, continue to receive for the Lord for another few minutes.